Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast Living with the River. My name is Vedika and I welcome you to this conversation with Devdeep Gupta, an artist from Assam who works with visual mediums like photographs and films. In Living with the River, we try to encapsulate synergies between art, politics, urbanization, farming, community, ecological doom and other developments concerning the river Brahmaputra into an easily accessible and comprehensible format. In our conversation today, Devdeep and I ruminate about his projects and their implications, urban life and the city of Guwahati. Hi Devdeep, welcome to Living with the River and uh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with us. I'm very excited about everything we're going to talk about today. You are an interdisciplinary artist, or at least that's how you define your work. Right. And you use mediums of photographs and videos as well as live installations right. to to express your work. So one of my favorite work that I would like to talk to you about is The Man on the Boat. The reason why I want to talk to you about this is because we have already spoken about this last year. And when I saw the project last year, the way that I saw it, was um, I mean the first thoughts in my head were uh, okay there's a blue man there's a blue boat and my thoughts were okay the contrast of the blue man and the boat with the background and how the sky sort of looks overcast and I, of course I noticed the river etc but it was very compositional like I my commentary was very compositional about you as an artist but I was looking at the project again uh, to prepare for our interview today and i think for the first time i realized that the main character of the photograph is not the man or the boat but it's the city itself yeah. Yeah. and uh, i think the reason why i could see this was because of the placements the places where you had put them especially like in a fish market and stuff mm-hmm. where life just did not stop because yeah. of even though weird object was in the middle of us yeah. life did not stop and i think that becomes so much more prominent <coughs> in the pandemic where even with the pandemic a lot of our older notions of work and life and studies or education nothing nothing has exactly changed even though we talk about it like that so can you tell us a little bit about this project right uh, okay i i will start with uh, talking about the project and then i will address this uh, the aspect of being what it means to be a uh, for me what it means to be a multidisciplinary uh, artist uh, i think uh, um, uh, before doing man on boat i was not uh, inclined to do art or whatever you know like i was not inclined in artistic practices my uh, introduction to art happened uh, not art but uh, i don't know installations happened through Uh, music festivals urban festivals stuff like that i got a uh, commission to make decorations mostly aesthetical decorations without context without uh, sufficient aesthetics basically and yeah i did that for like 2 3 years i think and that's that's when it started a sort of uh, clear that it was not what i was looking for that i wanted something more and uh, and coincidentally this was also the time that i was talking with the protagonist of man on boat uh, ramu chaudhary i had known him for maybe a week and uh, i met him coincidentally in in gwalpara i was in gwalpara in 2016 in in bolodmari which is uh, the site for read uh, readwall but that came later and uh, i was talking to him about you know like life along the river blah 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 and then 
he uh, moved to Guwahati. I think a few days later, we met. We met in the Uzanbazar Ghat. He was living, so to say, illegally in this area with his family, with his entire family, like a very extended family. So it was a community of, I think, 15 families altogether. And uh, yeah, so while talking to him came up this idea to work together, to collaborate on a project. And the context of the project became this invisibility of, of people who are termed as uh, illegal migrants, it's like emphasized on these two words, that they are stripped of uh, rights, they're stripped of any sort of, uh, that all of their, uh, I would say, all of their concerns are simply negated because they don't have a legal bond to uh, to be in the place that they are, right? The context, this context sort of defined the form of the project as well, that we address this factor of invisibility, of living next to the river, but yet not being a part of the entire ecosystem of the river. And uh, this is how we uh, developed the project in, 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 in collaboration. It was an exchange that he told me that his boat was broken since a year, so he couldn't work on the river. So it was sort of an exchange that I tried to fix his boat hmm. and he does this performance with me. And uh, yeah, that was it. And uh, we we tried to involve, his entire family was involved. We were uh, sort of moving the boat around the, on, in this whole city. It was uh, extremely chaotic. Uh, there was problems with the police, with the, I don't know what, uh, the governor, governor's convoy, stuff like that. But it was uh, quite a fun experience from designing the paint, uh, trying it out, uh, yeah, and also simply to observe the reactions of, at first, his immediate family, his wife and his two daughters, then his extended family, then the neighborhood, and then uh, the reaction of the uh, people that we placed the performance in. Hmm. Uh, in retrospective, I think that I don't like the point that I was in there. I don't like what uh, in my head was, because I was not really focused on the the meaning or, or the on the on the deeper levels of the context that i was doing or i was trying to do rather like uh, as in regarding the project you weren't sure about no i mean at, at that point i was really sure about, about the project or maybe it was this kind of juvenile uh, confidence so to say and also because everything was highly intuitive there was no thought behind it you know it was more like okay uh, we designed a protest okay uh, yeah and we, we try to design this this uh, uh, silent protest, so to say, the sculpture, this monument. Mm. And also on the, on the other context was that in Assam, or at least in my immediate vicinity, whenever I could see uh, monuments, it was already, always of glorified people, you know, of kings and I don't know, politicians, stuff like this. So there was this different, uh, there was this thought that added to the, uh, to the idea of what is a monument or who could be in a monument. But what I didn't like at that time, or what I don't like now, is that I really didn't have any sort of uh, uh, background knowledge of performance, of sculpture. What is the, uh, what could be the implications of such a, of such an act? Mm. You know, that what it, what would it mean for him? What would it mean for me? Like down the line, down the years. So is it, is this thought? Is there a reason for thinking like this? Did something happen? After this project, I got selected for a master's program and. Before I had zero knowledge about art theory, I had zero knowledge about performances or installations or simply monuments or whatever. And I, I, don't, I also don't know now, but I think I have a bit more understanding than I, than I had in 2017. And I think if I do that project now, I would address a lot of these things or I would try to address a lot of these thoughts beforehand. 
but maybe that changes nothing in the project. Maybe uh, yeah. the form remains exactly the same, but then I would, uh, at least in the back of my head, I would be sure of a lot of things that I simply took for granted at that time. Of course, these are all very, very important because I think at the end of the day, you're answerable to yourself as an artist. True. But as someone who's just observing your project, I feel like the transformation happened for me despite everything that you have mentioned right now. Yeah. And uh, as the project stands right now, I feel like it does hold the potential to sort of um, hold a mirror to society, to not only be an aesthetic piece of art, but also you know, present the city of Guwahati as a character itself, which at least personally, I have not seen a lot of work done on Guwahati like that. And I think there is really a lot of character in the city. When you place your work on like this weird image of mm -hmm. the Uzan Bazaar Machli uh, market yeah. with the boat and the man in the middle versus an everyday image of the Machli market, the presence of the boat really highlights the background. Yeah. So you really remember the fact that these people are still buying and selling and doing their life stuff yeah. when there's something so weird in the middle of them yeah. as opposed to like a normal photograph. So I yeah. think what I'm trying to say is that as a viewer, I think the meaning still evolves for me despite the fact that you're going through your own ruminations about mm -hmm. it, which is of course very interesting. I would like to talk to you a little more about uh, your meeting with Ramu Chaudhary and how did that happen and why did you decide uh, to use the colour blue? <laughs> so Ramu Chaudhary, I think I, I met him in 2016 in, uh, in Bolognari. I was uh, doing a trip with Rishikesh Chaudhary, one of my friends who is also a co-founder of Northeast Lightbox uh, Collective. Uh, you are a part of Northeast Lightbox right, Collective, right? right. We, we went to uh, Gualpara in 2016 to meet with another photographer friend, Akshay Mahajan. He was doing a work on, on, on Gualpara, on the folklore of Gualpara. And uh, we met him by, uh, by accident actually. Uh, it was raining, we simply had to find some shelter and he just happened to be the person who provided us with that shelter at that moment. Mm. And that's how we just simply started talking, we simply started going on. It was sort of this this power dynamic us from the city coming with cameras coming with fancy whatever uh, and him uh, being this this uh, native this local in this shattered house trying to give us some sort of shelter so this is how this entire uh, journey started this entire conversation started and he was telling us what are the problems or what kind of help that they get from the government or simply trying to explain his position which affected a lot of the initial context building or conceptualization about this project. Right. You, you would also mention that um, Ramu Chaudhary is a quote-unquote like a squatter on the right. banks. Yeah. And um, this brings me to this conversation about how the banks are really um, viewed and used, at least in the city of Guwahati. And the way that a lot of, a lot of government schemes and stuff are directed towards beautification mm. and towards like gentrifying but the result of doing the gentrification is also that you're limiting accessibility yeah. sometimes limitation of accessibility comes with surveillance as well and that has its own impact on the people who um, who get to enjoy this yeah. and the way that you get to enjoy this and I think you must have a lot to say about this because also you lived in Germany now for a few years where 
they the way that they deal with their forests or their natural resources is very uh, they're very concerned with maintaining it right yeah it's a mechanical process for them they have a uh, set rules and you can do this you cannot do this that's it you know and people follow these rules and yeah. that helps to sort of maintain this uh, outlook of what we can perceive from outside in terms of this ramu chaudhary being a squatter and again this this conversation of what it means for a beautification drive and who it is meant for mm. i mean clearly it is meant for the people who are legal so to say you know who have a right to be where they are like people like us who can rent houses or have properties in their names or stuff like this who can vote have money simply oh yeah or yeah like a certain privileged class of the society which could be starting from lower middle class and upwards yeah. right and uh, for people like him who come to the city in search for uh, work and search for better opportunities or simply yeah looking for a better or brighter future but then uh, not having the necessary resources to do so which uh, forces them to be, to live in this very close knit society uh, or a very close knit community in a place which is easily overlooked that i mean for example before 2014 i think it was quite normal for people of azam bazar to see squatters in the area it was just accepted it was just they were simply there you know mm. and uh, this was also the the community of people which uh, widely formed the the fisherman market widely formed the entire diaspora which lived next to the river the the uh, washermen the fishermen the uh, the ferrymen uh, people like this and uh, and then came the beautification drive which simply said that okay we remove all these squatters and we make uh, we put tiles we put uh, we make a park fences. yeah we yeah fences and we put park benches so that people can enjoy you know the brahmaputra in its glory and uh, the idea was simply to remove people you know and then where do they go no one cares because uh, that's not the uh, agenda of the government and i mean the way they design these beautification drives or the way they they put the words you know that we remove this community because they are not legal here and then no one asks question because the conversation stops at legal you know and people just care about okay nice we have a better place to my chill. city looks beautiful i right. don't care about anything else right. i have many people say that to me I mean, this begs the question, right? Um, and I think you've already addressed it, but I would like to really flag it: Who are you making this beautiful for? Who is going to have access to this park, and at what cost? Mm-hmm. There was someone living there. I mean, this question also has multiple facets of gentrification of this politics of who puts how much money in their city. Like, where is this money coming from, or why do we exactly need? Uh, I mean I think the question of why do we need a beautification drive is not as important but rather to address at what cost are we achieving this beauty and who gets to to consume this entire idea yeah. of making a bank beautiful you are also an architecture student yes you used to be an architecture <laughs> student <laughs> yes, yes so i think this is a good conversation to have even from that perspective right uh, what why i mean what are the sort of structures that you're choosing to beautify yeah. are you making any efforts to preserve what exists of the nature or um, there there's a a little bit of a conversation in the west about like green spaces mm-hmm. and then they talk about privately created green spaces which are a little bit difficult to access mm-hmm. are sort of surveilled etc and then there are um, just natural you know yeah, not organized sort of green spaces so when city beautification and building just seems like 
It's creating right. structures to restrict access. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting concept, especially in a place like Assam, where you have uh, where you don't really have a lack of green spaces, so to say, like mm. organized or disorganized, so to say. Uh, I mean, for that matter. And in terms of this Guwahati beautification drive, I think it followed a lot of this uh, river beautification drives that happened in Gujarat, that happened in Bihar. The comparison was always marine drives, you know. So I think there was already this this very highly set urban uh, mm. standard, which was of course romanticized through Bollywood, through uh, blah blah blah. And we have this image of what it means to be in the marine drive, and it automatically is being perceived as a privilege. And then you sit on the Brahmaputra thinking, on the banks of the Brahmaputra thinking that, okay, I'm in the marine tribe of Guwahati. And that sort of brings this weird satisfaction that, okay, if not Bombay, it's Guwahati. Yeah. But also in India, I think there are ghats, Ukris, mm -hmm. yeah. they are inherently public spaces. Right. People already are present on the ghats yeah. and assemble on the ghats, etc. So, I mean, seeing as that exists, to build a park, I don't know, I I have not really been able to understand um, the reasoning behind what mm -hmm. sort of beautification projects are being picked up by the government because when, I mean, at least in India, even near the Ganga and stuff, the Ghat is naturally a place right. for people to sort of get together and come together. I mean, historically it has been that mm. way. I think, I mean, there's also another dimension that comes into it, which is that how much money does the center allocate in the name of specifically making your city beautiful or making a smart city or whatever. Right. And then you have to make use of that money within that quadrant of the year or within that uh, time frame. And then you select which areas do we need or which areas can be targeted for maximum impact at a minimum price, so right. to say. There's something to also be said about the fact that, you, I mean, people pollute the Brahmaputra right. and the Bhorulu, it does not look like a river anymore. It doesn't exist anymore, yeah. So there's something to also be, to also be discussed about just the, the action of cleaning the rivers mm -hmm. as beautification instead of building. Yeah, yeah. it's a very interesting river. thought, it's a very interesting thought. And, uh, I think this is what also happens uh, mostly that in our daily lives, these things are simply taken for granted. The river is there, you know, I can throw my uh, cigarette or my uh, cup of flowers, uh, you know, yeah, whatever, you know, uh, plastic, organic, doesn't matter. But it's taken, it's understood or perceived as an inherent right that has no consequences. And this is what has happened to Bhorolu, which it doesn't exist anymore. The river is not there. And, uh, and people do not like to talk about it because it's not a uh, it's not a comfortable conversation to be had because there's a lot of uh, responsibility that needs to be taken by the people who live next to the river who who, who are actually there and that that doesn't in only include illegal squatters or whatever it includes every person that lives uh, in the vicinity and beyond you know that uh, and uh, i think in a place like guwahati which is still a tier three tier two three city Conversations about livelihood are immediate for at least maybe 60 to 70 percent of the demographic, you know, that how to earn bread for today, today matters. And uh, this is what is the most important question for so many people. And uh, in such a scenario, in such a hustle, basically, talks about what are our responsibilities towards nature 
become automatically takes the back seat automatically becomes the secondary conversation like we often hear people saying that bhorolutu safaole bhal asel kiman bhal asel bhorolutu safaole kiman bhal asel but then no one really puts their foot down and says okay from tomorrow, from today onwards i throw no shit in the river right. you know no one takes on that responsibility because they always perceive that this is a social cause that is for someone greater someone more powerful mm. someone more influential even though there are people in guwahati who are doing this right of course and um, even as we talk about wanting the bharulu to be clean mm-hmm. uh, making canons like amsterdam in guwahati <laughs> <laughs> but even as uh, we do this we're not really happy to segregate our garbage we're not, not happy to do yeah. it at all there are these groups there mm-hmm. is one group at least who organizes mm-hmm. small cleaning drives um midway journey midway journey correct right. so when midway journey does this even though it is it happens on a very small level it's a very small area that is covered the number of people who show up is 20 or 30 people even then i think it is a good reminder of our accountability absolutely for the people who show up a lot of the local people like people who live there in the area also see them do the clean up and i think that itself is a good reminder and absolutely. we need yeah. these reminders it becomes a symbol you know more than the action it becomes uh, i mean the action itself it is uh, absolutely important but then it also become, becomes a mirror for our own reflections that uh, yesterday the cup that i threw is mm. being picked up by someone else so of course it's a it's a strong reminder you know and sort of works in a subliminal level that okay tomorrow i don't throw my cup maybe i just put it in the garbage bin and i, I think it does for me but yeah. i i don't know if you can really say that I am Vedika Parekh and this is Living with the River. Today we are joined by photographer and filmmaker Devdeep Gupta. So I would I would also like to shift our attention a little bit towards your uh, second project which is the Reed Wall. Right. Uh what is very intriguing to me and also to a few people who I read about the project with is the fact that you used sustainable material to build the wall. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so after Manon Boat, after uh, we did the Manon Boat project, I I left for Germany. I was not uh, here for the next six months. And during my master's course, I made it a point that I will make my thesis on Brahmaputra, and I will sort of create a series of works that are somehow connected to each other on a meta level, right? So Balodmari was the was the same village that uh, Ramu Chaudhary came from, and uh, yeah, I I sort of. wanted to go back to meet his extended family or to meet his sort of roots to explore you know to to find more narratives just to have a conversation or just to make few pictures i don't know so yeah me and rishikesh we went back to balatnari in 2018 and uh, we could not find the family we could not find uh, ramu chaudhary's relatives but uh, yeah we came across this this incredibly uh, beautiful village and the first thing we saw was these tons of people just working with this reed you know this this grass and and that grass that grows uh, it's one of the most primary material in that village and uh, when you go there when you stand in front of the village this is the first thing that you notice because everything walls roofs you know furniture everything is made of this boats even it's it's made of this particular material because it's in extreme abundance it's in absolute uh, abundance in that village and how it grows is basically when the river comes up you know uh, like it levels with the with the with the soil and after the monsoon when the water recedes this is the uh, the, the the grass that grows 
in in crazy quantities there and this is the uh, the material that the villagers depend on as as uh, for their sustenance during the periods that they cannot fish or they cannot go into the river so it is also this very uh, romantic sort of uh, a saying in hindi which is dubte ko tinke ka sahara so for me it was absolutely obvious it was funny but also in a very fucked up way of how the people who are the 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 uh, the primary responders to the flood but not in the sense of the uh, the administration but the people who faced the brunt of the river and what i saw was how well they have adapted their life shells to be not uh, running away from the flood or to be not uh, absolutely devastated by the destruction but then to find this this uh, symbolic straw you know this metaphoric straw to hold on to and to to hang on to during uh, the entire uh, the period of the monsoons again what what followed up the conversation was uh, uh, like when i was in the village they would say yeah golpara mein uh, embankments ban rahe and there's concrete stuff going on but no one comes to baladmari because it's simply it's not worth it it's the last village of golpara uh, whatever of jurisdiction and so we uh, so i thought okay why not you know we have a material we have this uh, great uh, resilient material to work with that you anyways are extremely skilled the villagers they were extremely skilled uh, while working with this particular grass so we decided to make a fun play you know that we make our own embankment or we make our own protection and we ended up designing this this uh, 20 meter long uh, wall so to say of course it didn't do you know, it didn't hold up or, no of course not it was gone in like 2 hours but it was a fun exercise so it was like a metaphorical something yeah like also this this uh, maybe an again a naive commentary on the uh, on the idea of resilience in terms and on parts of the villagers right um you just mentioned that embankments are built by the government right. in a few areas right before the village and yeah. usually the way that embankments are built are not very friendly with the river Oh, it's a concrete wall next so, to the river yeah uh so this so this building of the reed wall is not only symbolic in terms of like the villagers sort of rising up and being like okay we're going to build our own wall mm-hmm. um but also the material that you used i think is very interesting i mean uh, for me one thing was clear that uh, i mean n- not I, w- i would not say that it was clear to me but at that point in that uh, phase of my uh, career so to say i was against building uh, crazy sculptures in places that they didn't belong that i i was not i didn't totally understand uh, the idea or the concept of dislocation of what it means to bring like a, i don't know like a actual concrete wall uh, there and that could also be a statement or any other alien installation by sourcing material from everywhere else or from somewhere else rather and for me it was also logistically very uh, straightforward to simply use the material that was right in front of my eyes you know which was also the material that the villagers would would simply uh, accept and own in their own uh, in their but own but it tribe. didn't help right like it didn't really hold the water back of course but that was also not the point of the wall uh, of the of the of the project it mm. was more of a, uh, of a i don't know it could symbolic s- right it could it could seem like a task for of of sisyphus so to say but also at the same time it was like the small community building exercise where not not so much 30 people came in and we were just they were just all tying these knots helping me or I and mean, i was doing nothing there just 
I was asking the people tell me what to do and they were telling okay tie this tie that and I was doing that and then a bunch of children came in they started playing around the reed wall and then uh, we had the idea that okay we made a bunch of photographs why not we put it there and uh, sort of uh, create a very local hyper local exhibition we did that and then slowly more members of the villagers came in so there was I don't know for 10 minutes 50 people were there looking at the uh, photographs sort of having this exchange of oh yeah this is that guy who stays mm. there and look there's my photo I don't look so nice so very uh, very simple conversations that happened in that uh, during that uh, 10 minutes so to say so you have at this point we've already discussed two of your projects which is not even your entire like portfolio right. so I mean you've done a lot of work around the Brahmaputra so is there a sound memory that you have from the river like a, uh, an, an okay. auditory memory uh, this might sound a bit weird, but uh, I think my... I, I also might not call it my favorite memory, my favorite sound memory, so to say, but it was definitely one of the most fascinating memories that I had. And it came uh, during my third project, that was the Absent River. And I was working in Salmora in Majuli for that, uh, for that project. And uh, the way that I tried to do this project was actually to, to go to Majuli to stay there for an extended period of time and uh, to sort of try to uh, merge in within the, the dynamics of the village, within the social dynamics of the village, even though that sounds simply absurd and contradictory of mm. me, like a city boy, going there and trying to pretend like one of the people in the village. But I remember on my second visit, I think, I was camping at night because I wanted to do that uh, with a friend. And we were camping right next to the Brahmaputra in the winters. So in front of us was this vast expanse of just sand, like spread all over. It was a kind of a dark night. And uh, yeah, we have we cooked our food, uh, did this pretentious camping stuff next to the village. And around 1 or 2 p.m. we heard people talking from, but it was coming uh, 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 from the direction of the river, which was right in front of us. It was totally silent, like s some wind noises, this and that, but uh, me and my friend, we definitely heard, we distinctly heard maybe three or four people talking, but in a very strange language that was that was not native to that region. We couldn't make out which language it was, but yeah, uh, it was very faint voice. It sounded like it was coming from a distance, growing closer uh, bit by bit. We didn't know what it was, we didn't make anything so much out of it. But the next day, we talked to the villagers about it. And they said uh, that don't camp in that spot from the next day. Come stay with us or come stay closer to the village. Because these are the old kings of that area that come out at patrol at the night. And they maybe were not happy saying, seeing us camping there. So there was this, I don't know, weird spiritual angle to it, right. which was... Yeah, was there like ghosts and all involved? I have no idea. No, no, I mean nothing happened. We just heard these voices. I tried to record it, nothing came out. But it was, uh, it was just a very strange language that phonetically sounded ancient, so to say. Maybe uh, like a weird mix of Sanskrit and Assamese. I don't know. I mean, I can't even replicate it. But uh, yeah, that's how it sounded at, at that Sounds point. Sounds very evil. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, this was one of the most fascinating memories of sound associated with the river. So, okay, thank you, thank you very much. And I think I had a really, really good time having this conversation because I think there's a lot of self-awareness from you as an artist, which is uh, very heartening for me because 
I'm looking to understand so much of the work of the people I interview through the interview itself. Mm-hmm. And I was given, like you opened a door where I could look in deeper into your work. So thank you very much for that. Thank you as well. It was an absolute uh, pleasure. Okay. So, I mean, just to do the introduction a little bit of justice, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing right now, like where we can find it, the collective you're a part of? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a part of a collective called Northeast Lightbox. Uh, what we are trying to do is somehow facilitate uh, an avenue of contemporary visual arts in the region to sort of foster a new and upcoming artists and at the same time try to design an audience for visual arts because more, more often than not we keep hearing uh, that people say there is no scene, there is no art scene in Guwahati, there are no people, there are no whatever, there is not a community. But at the same time also, I mean, not many people are doing anything to change it. So what we try to do is sort of initiate collaborations between uh, artists, collectives, different collectives, also try to create more avenues of exhibitions, workshops, residencies, so to say. I mean, we have been active since 2017, but uh, now is when we have actually started putting uh, more and more time into the collective. And we can find the work on Instagram, is it? On Instagram, yes, and also online on northeastlightbox.com. You have a website. Right. And what about your own personal work? This is <laughs> this is another, uh, this is a deeper conversation to be had, I think. Because right now I am in sort of a dichotomy between my uh, practice as an artist and my practice as the co-founder of Lightbox. Mm. And for me, sadly, I have not yet come to the point where I see both of these practices as a single uh, channel. And for me, uh, the way I see them, and I know this is a shortcoming of me at the moment, that I see them as two parallel lines which are in the same direction but not intersecting yet. I am actively trying to find avenues that could uh, potentially allow me to intersect my own ideology, my own practice, my own beliefs with the collective's beliefs and uh, practices. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of this. Yes. It was a pleasure. Brilliant.